Welcome back to Two Halves Make a Whole. This is Mike Cherney. And I'm Aaron Blumenthal. And today we are going to talk to you about student loans. Everyone's favorite thing. So we're going to start out with a little bit of history. Of um, course. <laughs> obvi- obviously, my favorite part. So <laughs> U.S. higher education and specifically loans that are linked towards that kind of really <laughs> begin at the end of World War II. So 1945, 1946 with, um, with, the, G- with the GI Bill. So it gave people, uh, you know, soldiers that were returning home the opportunity to have money that went towards a college education. So this was a big, big boon towards, you know, pushing people to, to go get educated. In the 1950s, there was, there was a hodgepodge of things that came about, but it wasn't until Lyndon Baines Johnson's administration in 1965 that you had what was known as um, I think it was the Higher Education Act, if I remember correctly. Uh, and what happened was there was a uh, senator from the state of Vermont named Stafford. And he proposed, along with a couple other senators, a method of going about and actually subsidizing education. So there was a system of how we went out and we actually... Uh, sort of funded education. And so we originally came out with uh, subsidized loans, right? So these are, these are loans that are basically backed uh, in a similar way to like kind of mortgages, but mm, that's not the best way of thinking about it. We'll get back to this in just a second. The point I'm trying to make is there, so these Stafford loans were set up and they actually existed until 2010 when they were replaced by William B. Ford loans based off of, a, of, of an act that, that I believe passed in 2009 and was enacted in 2010. Um, you, you had these subsidized loans that basically, that kind of forced in some ways universities and colleges that accepted these subsidized loans to have certain stipulations, right? And so they had to do certain things. And part of it actually was, you know, keeping costs low. So one of, one of the big things that happened was and I'm not 100% certain on the date, but they, we started, uh, the government came out with what are known as unsubsidized loans. So those are not backed loans. And what happened was these loans didn't have the same ramifications that these subsidized loans had. So it, it, in, a, in a less complex way of, of saying this, they, they were still also linked to the cost of college, but along with the uh, U.S. News and World Report, which, came, which started showing college rankings in the 80s, these unsubsidized loans actually became sort of the vogue in terms of funding education. And so what ended up happening was you, you had these ratings that were, that were based off of prestige and that said, look, you know, like there are certain things you need to hit. These started driving costs of colleges up because more people wanted to go to these fewer subsets of colleges. So, you know, supply, su- supply goes down, demand goes up, cost is going to increase, right? So you have fewer colleges trying to take in more students. And one of the metrics that they showed was actually, uh, for this prestige actually was uh, acceptance rates, right? And so the lower your acceptance rate, actually the higher your prestige was. And so as a result, you saw these costs throughout education kind of pushing up, right? You have loans that didn't have the same stipulations. 
you had universities that were trying to have lower acceptance rates and actually raise the ratings in the 1980s and well, really through now, but really came into vogue in the early 2000s. And at the same time, more people trying to go to fewer universities. So as a result, this just sort of, you know, it's the classic economics uh, issue. If I have, if it's a rainy day and I'm selling umbrellas and I only have five and there's 10 people that want them, I can basically choose the price. And that's essentially what happened here. So the, there's been a bunch of reforms that have happened throughout the years to, uh, to what LBJ signed in 1965. But they, the same basic structure really applies. For the most part, these, these lo- you will not be taking, well actually, you shouldn't be taking personal loans to, um, for education. And one of the things that actually came about, and I don't know the exact date offhand, um, I will pull it up because I wrote this down on my phone, but basically there was a point at which if you go bankrupt, there was a, there was a law that was passed that you still have to pay your student loans. Correct. They are not forgivable ever. Unless you die. Unless you die, which, you know. It could be worse than having to pay back your loan. Yeah, you, you, you don't have much um, room for improvement there <laughs> <laughs> off of which to work. So I know I mentioned a bunch of things here. So first and foremost, I mentioned both subsidized and unsubsidized loans, right? I mentioned that they, these loans operate in a slightly different way than do your traditional kind of mortgage or, you know, just your traditional like loan. Suppose I want to, you know, buy a car, I want to do X or Y, and you pull a loan out for that. And I also mentioned that there's a lot of laws and rules and regulations around these. One more thing that I'll throw in in the mix just to make things absolutely confusing is there are both government loans and grants, and then there are there are um, private. there are private loans, right? And these and these actually operate in different ways. So you've probably also heard that there is loan forgiveness. The stipulations that are required in order to get some of this to get this loan forgiveness and the way that loan repayment goes makes this an extremely tricky process and. As much as I as I wish I could tell you exactly how to do it, that is where you want to talk to someone. If if that is what you are trying to do, you that you need to seek a professional to if you are trying to get your loans forgiven because there are there are very specific stipulations you need to do based on your career, your location, where where you plan on working. So I, I do want to forewarn you on that before we we go in. But without further ado. Yeah, and on, on that private, subsidized, unsubsidized, I guess government versus private, Yeah. if you're looking for loan forgiveness, which has been a hot topic lately, you'll, you'll want to talk to a loan advisor on either the government side or the private side and be wary of, uh, effectively, sharks or snakes trying to get you out there in the, the private side, trying to ask you or asking you to refinance your government loan into a private loan. There's, there's different ways to consolidate your debt, and student loans are, I guess, one of those things that you can consolidate. But if you're in a protected or subsidized government loan and you try and jump into a private reconsolidated um, or refinance loan, the terms may be very disadvantageous to you, even though it looks like a great deal up front. Yeah, yeah there's there are other costs that you have to consider, right? And so just... Be very, very wary of that. This is this is one place where 
we are going to talk about it, but also make sure you take the time to educate yourself as well and to look these terms up and to make sure that you don't get kind of pushed into this. Because as you mentioned, like there's a ton of people that are kind of, that are snakes that, that are trying to push you into these, into these products. And to some extent, while they're legally allowed to, allowed to one, but they, they're also, they don't necessarily have the same, um, like requirements that, that other banks or other places do in terms of showing you all the information. So just be, be aware of that. Textbook predatory loan, if you've ever heard the term. Oh yeah, pretty much. But yeah, no, there's like, we are one of the few countries in the world that have a system that operates like this. And there are a ton of reasons why. And like I mentioned, it really goes back to that, to the end of World War II. It really goes back to, I know, which I know, you know, 1945, long time ago, but the GI Bill really is what kind of drove this need in the United States for education with the greatest generation that then went and came and had baby boomers that also went out and got it and, and got educated. And there's, so actually you and I were talking about this beforehand, but the fact of the matter is in 1970, you could work minimum wage, you could work these jobs and you could pay for your education and you could also, you know, eat as well. And rent and travel and do what you needed to do to get your education completed with without a loan yeah. on top of that. And it, it ties to another thing that Aaron and I were talking about earlier was just, uh, and Aaron touched on it, was supply and demand. There's been a huge push for everyone to go to college. And there's only so many colleges or only so many positions open for classes in those colleges. And if that means that those colleges get to reject more candidates, it makes them more prestigious because they're harder to get into. It's like that club where you see everybody lined up around the block, but nobody can actually get in. But it looks really, really high end, and everybody now wants to go there because nobody can go there. Yeah, which is which is where my favorite Groucho Marx comment comes in, which is, I don't want to be a part of any club that wants me as a member, which is just fantastic. Sorry, I that apologize. Is, that's a great, that's a great it, line. It, it, like, it touches me emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> and with all these people having... Uh, wanting to go to college now, the demand for college educations spiked. And because that supply was more or less fixed because you couldn't just have universities springing up, get their accreditation and hiring professors to start curriculums, you had the prices of these educations go up because they could charge more. They were the umbrella salesmen during a rainy day with only five umbrellas. And these costs just kept spiking and they got more and more and more every year to and they were totally out of touch with the rise of costs of living. So where in the 60s and 70s and probably even 80s, you could afford to go to college on a regular working salary, working a part-time job, paying for your school and not needing a loan. Now that you had full-time education programs that were 30, 40, $50,000 a year, that's after tax money. And if in order to get that kind of money after tax, you have to earn the amount of money that you're looking to get or more coming out of school. Yeah. And that's without eating, without living, without traveling, without doing anything recreational that is just strictly then going to pay for school. And so the, there's a couple different options at your disposal. You can get a loan or you can get a scholarship or a grant, I suppose. Um, so there are different ways to bring the, those costs of education down. But for the most part, the education got a lot more expensive and the rates of pay did not keep up with that rise in tuition because 
in a large part that huge rise in demand for secondary or um, higher education. Yeah, absolutely. And we do want to mention that like we we're both college graduates, so this is one of those. I know this is a touchy subject for you know people like us to mention, but there are other options other than 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 college and university that you can go to. Um, to some extent, actually, the trades are a great example of this. Um, the a plumber in Seattle right now, a beginning plumber, will make about seventy grand, and a you know master plumber I think can make up to two hundred and fifty grand in uh, per year in uh, in in cities like Seattle. So it's one of those. There are other options, but focusing in right now in in on loans, the you. There's a bunch of other things to consider, right? Um, there's there's an old joke, uh, you know, if you go to college, make sure you can you can pay for it at the end. But it's to some extent it's true. Um, make sure you fully if if you're in that position right now, make sure you fully understand the implications of what you're doing. Um, but you know, there's there are multiple ways of repaying loans, um, and so like we'll get into some like some more specifics, but just. There, one thing you can see is there's uh, is there's income repay uh repl- income repayment. Oh my days, I can't speak today. Income repayment, right? Which is which usually is based off of a percentage of your of your income that you're gonna essentially pay for the rest of your life. Um, there are you can you can pay larger sums. There's different ways of repaying loans based upon sort of your schedule, right? So if you're suppose you are more freelance. And you don't necessarily have that steady stream of income. Um, you're not necessarily going to want to go with with an income repayment plan, but there are other ways of approaching this. There, it is also worthy of note, and I know this is something we like both of us have alluded to, but because of COVID, and because of numerous bills that have been passed, interest on student loans is an extremely hot topic right now. It is, and just before we move on to that topic. Uh, it, this is an interesting topic for us to cover because there's so many different variables. It's actually, I mean, I guess most of the things we've covered have a lot of variables to yeah. it, but <laughs> this one's just very uh, different in terms of how you can look at it, where you can apply for uh, student loans, different terms that are available. And it, it's really, at the end of the day, it's going to be up to you to make sure that when you're going for a loan that you know what it is you're getting into. If you already yeah. have a loan, it's what are the terms that you're currently signed up for and potentially are there more advantageous methods that you can go about repaying that loan, getting it refinanced, or getting it consolidated into better terms for you. I think that's a good segue into the, the COVID piece of where we're at with interest rates. Yes. So actually, let's take a step back and talk about, because um, now we're talking about interest rates and I realize we're talking like how my mind works, which is actually a scary place. So let's, so starting out with um, sort of the difference between subsidized and unsubsidized loans and then how we're, how you actually pay them and versus the interest that you are, that you're accruing on them. Um, I am going to screw this up because I always screw this up. Subsidized loans, you pay after, after yeah, graduating. after graduating, unsubsidized, you you still have to pay and accrue during during your education. Okay. Yes, pumping fist. 
So this actually has extremely interesting implications for how much the loan actually could in the end be worth while you're while you're working, so to speak, right? Because if you think about it, if you're accruing and, and having to pay while you're in school, yes, you can you can technically uh, you know pay minimum going through, but because you're accruing the whole time, that is can build up a little bit. It's going to also you're gonna to have to strategize a little bit differently in terms of how you how you pay and approach those versus a subsidized loan where you will start paying after. It's right after you graduate, right? Correct. Yeah. And the interesting thing on student loans versus personal loans as we continue to talk down this interest path is that your interest can build interest yeah. versus standard loans builds interest on principle. Yep. So, which, okay, one, one way of thinking about this is um, if you draw a bar, right, just a solid, solid bar of, you know, let's choose blue, right? And we say the red portion that we're going to continually kind of scratch off into it and color into it is what we've paid off. So that way, once it's all paid off, it's all red. One way of thinking about it is that's, that initial bar is your principal. As you, as you pay it down, you will be paying interest on it, but you are paying ideally into the principal, Right. When you are, when you have a student loan, that bar technically continually gets bigger. bigger. And so that is going to sort of snowball in a different way than will even like, you know, any personal loan or even to that extent, some mortgages, you know, work. So it's, this is an abstract concept that I am trying to, so to you color figure, out. Yeah. yeah, if you figure... <laughs> You've got, we'll pretend your, your school costs are $10,000 per year. Yeah. You go for four years, you'll accrue $40,000 worth of loan principal, Yes. 10000 per year. But once you take that first $10,000 loan in your freshman year, you are building interest on that first 10000 Then in your sophomore year, you take another $10,000, you are building on 20000 and so on until you get to 40000 your senior year. Where you've collected on 10, 20, 30, and now $40,000. Yeah. So your interest payments have continued to grow bigger. And while even though you're, you may be paying those down while you're in school, you're only really chipping away at the interest versus when you're paying down a mortgage or a car loan, even if you're front loaded or back end loaded on your interest on those, you're always chipping away at least a portion of your principal so that your interest payments come down over time. And you continue, and then your principal payments grow over time because there's less interest you need to pay off. So even though those fixed payments are always the same, the amount of that fixed payment that goes to your principal is larger, and the amount that goes to your interest is smaller. With student loans, you're only paying off that interest that keeps accruing throughout the year, especially when you're making those minimum payments. Then when you're out of school, you're saddled with a four-year-old $40,000 principal that has accrued interest for all that time where you now have a massive interest payment on the front end that you have to work down while you continue to collect interest on your $40,000 loan. And this is why people get stuck with their student loans for so long is that they never really make a dent in that principal. And instead of just making a dent in the principal, they're adding on to it over time, which makes it even more difficult to then pay off. Yeah. And famously, 
one example of having to pay off later in life. Michelle Obama didn't pay her uh, her student loans off until they uh, and, and I think it was during during the presidency. Yeah, during the president uh, during the second term. So like, and she was a successful attorney. It's in not forties, forties at that time. I think forties or early fifties. But the point, but she was still like she had she had been a practicing attorney for uh, for almost twenty years at that point, and like not and not just a practicing attorney. A really high-paid, you know, good attorney at a, at a large law firm in Chicago. So it's one of those. That interest gets stuck with you for a very can get very, stuck with you for a very long time. Yeah, an extremely long time. Even and that's why, like you're talking about, it's that it, it can feel like you're getting nowhere. Absolutely, which is also uh, a quick segue here on on looking at grants or scholarships, why they're so important for you to go after. Because if you can knock off $5,000, $10,000 worth of principal on that loan, that is going to stay with you for those four years, and then that is not going to collect interest over time. So it's actually yeah. worth quite a bit more if you're taking loans out to get those scholarships and grants because their long-term value is worth a lot more than whatever the face value is. And if you look at, say, what your earnings power is, during or after school, the amount of hours it would take you to earn back that money after tax to make up for what it would be to get that grant or that scholarship. So if whatever amount of time the application or the essay takes you to write, it is almost never as long as it would take you to work that many hours to make that money back. So the, the return on your investment for your time when writing those applications, those essays, is massive. You're looking at 10, 100x your earnings power at a job. So if you work eight hours a day, right, you'd have to work how many, like 80, 90, 100 hours before you're actually really getting the amount of money to pay back portions of these grants, these scholarships versus a few hours, uh, a few nights a week to write an essay to turn in and potentially win and take a chunk off of your your tuition payment. Yeah. And to that extent, the that actually gets us into an interesting so you mentioned the you're like writing an application so actually the when you want to apply for student loans the two things that you're going to most likely the two things that you're going to have to do is for sure the fafsa which is the which i had to just look up it is the um actually and i just forgot it so i'm literally pulling it up now it's the free application for federal student aid and then the second one that you that you will have to most likely do depending upon the cut. And so that's like, it, like it says in the name, free application. Then the next one you have to do is the, usually the CSS profile. And that one's actually through a private company, the college board. And that is actually fee based. Um, and so that actually, so what that one usually does is that taps into institutional funding rather than federal or state funding and the federal application for, um, for uh, student, for federal student aid, free applicant. Man, that is not a good acronym. FAFSA. FAFSA. The FAFSA, it, that one goes, as its name applies, more towards the Fed, uh, it, it, not more towards, it goes towards the federal applica- uh, federal financial aid and towards state financial aid. So they're kind of going back to the like two-tiered approach in both the subsidized and unsubsidized, two public tiers. Public and private. And public and private, exactly. This goes with that. And this is more with the public-private, right? So there's, you hear about universities having endowments, right? And so part of endowments uh, pay for some education 
right? A lot of it pays for buildings and in other parts of the university experience, but some of that does go to uh, go to these, um, you know, to, towards financial aid for students. Some of it actually goes towards scholarships and grants, and that will be through the CSS profile usually. Some schools, primarily state and not private universities, do not require or will not have the CSS profile. Uh, and that usually has to do with, with smaller endowments, smaller gifts that have been given to them, um, or more reliance upon state budget. So like, once again, thousands of factors. Right. When you're looking at a, so when you're applying for FAFSA, one quick tidbit is make sure you go to the right source and it's fafsa.gov. Yep. Don't go to fafsa.com. Don't have someone else do your application for you. You're still giving them all the same information, and then you're giving some private company a lot of personal private information for a government program. Just go directly to the source. It's a free application. Don't let someone charge you for it. Yeah. You have to put all the same information anyway. You might as well just do it on the on the real thing. The one that you will get charged for is the CSS profile, but, but that is because that is through a private company. Uh, the other thing is always, if you if you're worried about like remembering this, go through the U.S. Depart uh, U- U.S. Department of Education's website. Like start there, just because there is that will reduce the risk of you not doing something right or choosing the wrong form. Actually, not cho- doing something wrong is or not doing something right is not necessarily what I want to say. Not doing something wrong or choosing the wrong link off of which to go is going to be much harder to do on um on the website of the u.s department of education so start there if you're if you're really confused yep and then once you're in school most probably all universities at this point have a financial aid office and they're a really good resource typically speaking on helping you either with loan processing getting better rates on loans finding the right private institution if you've gone through a private entity to get your loan uh, they can show you additional resources such as additional applications for loans that are better um, or more advantageous more advantageous terms for you, uh, scholarship applications that are available that you may not know about, and even grant offerings from either private donors or government grants that are out there depending on what your field of study is and uh, a lot of times based on your background. Yeah. Also, if you have any questions in regards to... Um what you can and cannot do while you have one of these loans out, um, then that is, you will want to talk to the financial office, uh, financial aid office at your university, because that's going to help you make sure, uh, you know, you don't do something that will be outside of those bounds. What I'm really more referring to is I know some, uh, a couple, so I did co-op where I would work for a semester or a quarter, and then I would go back to, uh, then I'd go back to school the next. And I actually know a couple of my friends had issues doing that because I think that actually kicked off their, um, their uh, like needing to pay those interests. Um, so they actually ended up having to take classes. Once again, that is that was specific to their loans. So just be aware that that is a possibility. Should we get into the yeah, interest rates for COVID now? Oh, yeah, 100%. So as you may or may not have heard, this was sometime last year. Um, the government basically said no more student loan interest as long as this state of emergency is going on. And as a result, that actually kind of 
put a hamper on what we were talking about earlier on the accruement of interest while you are in school, which is an extremely beneficial thing. First off, it sounds beneficial. Second off, it is. Yeah. Uh, zero interest is kind of akin to saying free money. Yeah. It's not really, but as long as you're not paying interest, if you can put that money to use elsewhere to collect interest, you can make money on the money you're not paying in interest. Yeah, it's... Hmm. I'm trying to think of a good analogy for this, and I'm really failing right now. But <laughs> but basically, it's one of those... It kind of goes more back towards your traditional style mortgage loan, right? You, If you can pay, technically, you're paying down the principal. So you're not... I mean... You might technically at that point actually be paying down the um, uh, the interest that, you, that you've accrued. But that's going to, as we kind of alluded to earlier with the, uh, you know, getting grants and with getting uh, scholarships, that kind of is like double payment if you think about it later on, right? It's that, you know, the best time to plant a tree is, is 20 years ago. The second best time is now. If, what you're essentially doing is you're, is you're cutting down the amount that you're going to have to pay later Absolutely. by a substantial amount. Um, it's essentially double dipping into, into paying down the principle of that loan, which is something that I cannot recommend highly enough. Like debt should make you scared. And if you take any type of accounting classes, um, or finance classes, uh, or if you're familiar with the terms net present value, the net present value of that future amount is actually pretty great to be able to get a grant or a scholarship to take down that initial loan because you're not going to build interest over time. But right now, because there's essentially a interest deferral, if you will, because there's 0% rates, you're not having to grow or you're not accruing new interest on your loan. If your loan allows, if you're, I would continue to make payments towards your principal. You can leave the interest that's there uh, I would not advocate paying that interest, but if you can pay down the principal uh, with the money that you have, then that won't accrue when interest rates essentially get turned back on. Yeah. You did mention net present value, uh, net present value, which is one of my favorite things in the entire <laughs> world. So just really quickly, just because I want to touch on this. Basically, another way of thinking about this is, just like the name implies, net present value, what is, what is the value I place on something in the future if I could have that at this moment, right? So suppose, so a quick way of thinking about this is if I have a hundred dollars today and I did, and I put this in a bank, what is the net present value? It's well, it's, you know, how much interest I've accrued over that period of time is what that should be worth to me right now, right? If I wanted to say a hundred, you know, a year down the road, like what is that, what is that in today's dollars essentially is a way of saying it. Yeah, so if your inflation rate, for instance, which we talked about in episode one, yeah, uh, is say ten percent, right? And you put a hundred dollars away today, then in one year it'll be a hundred and ten dollars. Yeah. Um, or looked at a different way with inflation is if you were to buy something today that costs a hundred dollars in one year, that same cost is going to be a hundred and ten dollars. Correct, and that's a, and that gets back getting back to the loan accru- uh, loan repayment that we're talking about. Basically, the net present value of paying, uh, you know, of, of this in the future, right? So what is, so what is, how much is this going to cost me in the future in today's dollars? You can kind of keep it flat, 
right? If, if you're accruing uh, interest, that is going to be higher, right? So this is sort of that, you know, penny saved a penny earned thing. So if you are, so man, we are going down a rabbit hole right now, which is totally fine. But basically what's happening is if you are able to pay that money today, the amount that it would be worth in the future is a lot greater. Correct. So when you're out of school trying to earn back that money to pay off that loan, you're going to have to work a lot more hours to get that paid back. So as long as you're able to take advantage of 0% interest, I, I typically, I, I would advocate, um, again, you can, don't take it necessarily financial advice, but what right. I do personally, right, if I have a 0% loan, is I'm going to put the minimum in and keep my cash for myself as much as possible. But if you can pay that principal down, knowing that those interest rates will come back and you're going to continue to accrue interest, if you can knock your principal out, then that interest is going to stay flat afterwards because there's no interest, there's no principal to build interest upon. Yes, we, you did also kind of allude to two different strategies there. The, we also understand that right now you might not have a lot to to pay it down, but the the fact of the matter is anything you can put down, period, is going to be beneficial to future you. This is not, and don't necessarily take this as like hard financial advice, but that anything you can do to would be would be beneficial. That being said, if you don't have those funds, at least paying what you would normally pay as the minimum, what you've already factored in, that will be substantially helpful in the future. So it's one of those like, yes, there are a gazillion different different reasons why that might be the case. But if you can, by all means, like I'm not gonna say should, but but you like you can you can and it would be probably probably advantageous. Uh, another thing to look for if you are planning to continue to make payments, uh, when you're talking to your bank or when you're talking to your loan officer, whether it's a government loan or a private loan, find out if you're able to pay weekly. So mm. figure if you have the if you're right now you're paying monthly. And what I don't mean to say is pay four times as much every month. I'm saying you would break that payment of that month into four weekly payments. So if you had $100 to pay a month, you're now going to pay $25 a week. And what this typically does is when you make your full payment in a month, you've accrued interest, say, typically for a full month. If you're paying weekly, you're chipping away at your principal typically, um, and you're then not accruing on that first $25 you paid. And the next week, you're not accruing on that next $25 you paid. And the next week, you're not accruing on that next $25 you paid versus those three weeks. And if you do that for how many years you'd be paying this loan, by actually breaking and paying more frequently, you're taking down the amount of compound interest that you're building over time. Again, right now, if you're at zero, you're in a pretty good spot. This doesn't really apply. When interest rates do come back in the future, if you're still on that loan, by breaking your payments up to smaller amounts at more frequent intervals allows you to actually pay your loan faster without having to actually pay more money. Yes. The another way of thinking about this, just because like everything comes back to food for me. So <laughs> suppose you're going to eat 2000 calories a day. If 
the best way we currently divide it up throughout the day. If you eat it all at once, first off, you'll definitely get a stomach ache. But um, <laughs> unless it's like really calorie dense, such as like, actually, you still would get a. Uh, I was gonna say like four Snickers. Yeah, you'd still get a stomach ache. The point is <laughs> that I'm trying to make is. Think of it like if you're going to do that and you can burn the calories off as you're going, right? Versus having it all at one chunk and now you need to essentially burn all of those at one time, right? That is not the greatest analogy I've ever made, but I'm going to go with it. So like it's – we have multiple meals throughout, throughout the day. We don't just have dinner. So like kind of think about it that way. It's not – we do this elsewhere. You just don't think of it that way. Yeah, you could even extend your timeline and look at a – a month, right? You're not going to eat your month's worth of food at, in one sitting. Exactly. You're going to break that over the course of how many days. Um, so it, it, in, a, in some weird sense, right? We're making this analogy. You can, by breaking up those payments when you are paying interest on loans, uh, not just student loans, but any type of loan is if you're able to make a, <clears throat> excuse me, a more frequent payment so that your total ends up being the same every month, right? So that hundred dollars per month, but you could do $25 a week, ends up being $100 a month, you're then able to chip away at your principal at a much faster rate, and you don't let interest accrue on that principal as you're going along. Absolutely. It's, I mean, going back to the analogy with food, it's still, you know, it's still calories in, calories out, but you're going to technically be burning those calories quicker than if you just ate 2,000 calories in one sitting. Also, you'd still get a stomach ache. So, like, <laughs> I'm definitely going back to that multiple times, but it works. <laughs> so, I think that's a pretty good place for us to wrap oh, up yeah. for this week. Um, hopefully, you're able to get something out of it. There's obviously a lot more that we can't really quite cover. There's so many different uh, variables and, I guess, branches off of what type of loan and what the terms of those loans are. Just be sure that you're asking the right questions, reading the terms that you're in, and then just making sure you're working with your financial aid office to get the best or most advantageous terms for you and your situation. Yeah, and always ask for help if you need it. Like if you don't understand something, find someone that you, that you, that you know can answer this or at least can help direct you towards where to go. Also, don't get a stomachache. <laughs> and with that, thank you so much for listening. I'm Mike Cherney. And I'm Aaron Blumenthal. We are Two Halves Make a Whole, and we'll see you in a couple weeks for our next episode. Talk to you then.